Well, I guess since everybody got quiet, we'll go ahead and start. That was really <laughs> kind of funny. Um, I'm not sure what I did to give the signal to calm, but I wish I had that much control at home. That was really, that was great. So, let's pray. Father, for uh, for this day, thank you um, for uh, uh, for your word, um, for our worship of you, and for uh, um, for this church, for all that we have. We give you great thanks as ever, Lord. We are beggars, and now I beg that uh, you would be a part you know, of, this, uh, of this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're wrapping up this little short series on different parts of our, uh, our, our worship, our prayer book, our liturgy, our history, our practice, um, really anything, anything you want it to be. Today's the most disjointed of the three, because the other two weeks was able to sort of pick Holy Communion, and last week pick morning prayer. Today it's just kind of, you know, Lots of things. We've got lots of what's called pastoral offices that come up in different seasons of the church. Things like baptism um, and Anglicanism, confirmation, uh, 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 marriage, burial, different things like that. Today, probably spending the most time on burial, at least that's what I'm planning on doing. We can we can go somewhere else again, uh, sort of design this very short series. This is the last of the three. For a lot of interruptions, feedbacks, uh, feedback, questions, whatever whatever sort of is out there that, that if you want to raise your hand and say, I know this isn't where you are, but before this class ends, I'd love to know this. Uh, and I'll take a stab at it. You know, I'm rarely, you know, I'll say, I don't know, but da 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 and I'll make, a something, make something up. Um, so if that can help, let me know. Um, but otherwise, we're going to be just looking at different, different parts. Uh, it's less today, sort of right one versus right two, because with the exception of burial um, in our prayer book, <clears throat> there's only one option for baptism. There's only one option, um, one, one order, one liturgy for baptism, one liturgy for marriage, one liturgy for um, uh, 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 confirmation, but there's two for burial. They did keep that one, I think, just because it's such a sensitive time when the prayer book again was revised in 1979 um, from, the, uh, from the previous edition that was being used in the American Episcopal Church, anyway, the 1928 prayer book, uh, to just completely redo the language and redo the structure of the, the burial service, the funeral service, would have been a little bit too much, I think. And so they left the option of burial one and burial two. Today, because um, if, if we look at any side-by-side stuff, it'll be the two burial um, rites that we have in the prayer book. <coughs> um, if there's any place that I think the revision committee, if that's what it was called, uh, sort of, you know, stayed on, on the strongest ground. It was probably there. Burial 2 is not, not awful. Um, it's really not that bad. There's not too many places that I would uh, just really want to pick it apart and say they really erred here. Um, and that's if you've been around the last two weeks, you know, a little bit different than sort of my opinions on, a, on say, um, right to Holy Communion or right to morning prayer. Um, burial too is still pretty good. We have an adage in the Episcopal Church that we marry and bury well, and that's generally true. Um, if you can look at it, and we're the, we've got the sex appeal. You know, when, when you need a movie and you're going to have a burial service or a, a marriage, you know, we, we, we got the corner on that. You know, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and all assembled. You know, we got that. Um, or I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. You know, we got that. Um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We, we, we got that. You know, we're good there. Um, we still marry and bury well. And why do we marry and bury well? Hopefully, if you walk out um, today and from the series, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, any idea who said the phrase, but the idea of, of, uh, 
of the positive aspects of the Anglican worship, of the Episcopal worship, is that it's truly worship. Looked at that a little bit last week and got some feedback in between the weeks. It's not it's not trying to mix categories. It's not trying to make something out of the worship time that it's not supposed to be. Um, it's certainly got elements of different things, but it's, it remains on the vertical plane uh, of worship of us, the creatures, in front of a right relationship of our Creator, um, giving Him the proper amount of worth, worth-ship. That's what worship is. So we, we, we find that it's not a time for teaching. It's not, necessar- not necessarily, let me put it that way, not necessarily a time for teaching, not necessarily a time for evangelism, not necessarily a time for healing, not necessarily a time for um, outreach, um, not necessarily a time for pastoral, not necessarily a time for all these other things, which are all good, and they have their own times, but that not, that's not necessarily what that's for. Um, the way the, the phrases come down then, in, in, as the Anglicanism came out of the English Reformation, uh, that Thomas Cramner, in his genius, uh, looked at a quote from Fitzsimmons Allison last week, uh, said, you know, what, what Cramner's genius was, it wasn't in the same way that Calvin and Luther and even some of the sort of second-generation uh, reformers, what, what their genius was, it was a genius of synthesis. It was a genius of redaction. It was a genius of pulling together all that was good in the face of tremendous political uh, pressure. I mean, it was a, it was political as all get out, and, I, and I'm not prepared to speak to that, but others in the room would be in terms of Henry VIII and all, all of, all of the, the currents that were going on. Um, his genius was taking the Bible, keeping what was being reformed as good in the church, and then arranging it for worship, arranging it on this plane. And when, when we say that the Episcopal Church marries and buries well, it's not because of language. It's not just because it's pretty. Um, it is that, and that helps our emotive experience as an emotive vehicle in times of real sensitivity. Uh, it's got a pastoral sensitivity that's really not met elsewhere. If I pick on a, if I get on a horse today, it's going to be with the whole movement towards celebrations of life rather than funerals, and so I'll have to be really careful there. Um, it, as the Bible is arranged for worship in these pastorally sensitive moments, uh, like a marriage, especially a burial. Um, we still have that in our prayer book, our 79. So I'm trying to be objective and generous where I can rather than just becoming that old man who uh, says, oh, we used to do it this way and it was much better, you know, and all that. So I don't want to go there if I don't have to. Um, so any comments on that before just launch in and, and start looking at different things before we go to burial? Um, look a little bit at the 1662 prayer book, which is interesting in some of the, the phrases that they use. Um, but any comments or thoughts? <clears throat> Let me get, keep having a catch in my throat. Let's look at, um, just to start off, um, you're going to see me just working my computer. We're not going to use that anymore, so let's just get out of that. Uh, let's see, where was this? Um, can y'all see that? Let me make it bigger. Uh, 1662, um, if you remember some of the prayer book history that we've looked at, not going to go through it a lot, um, there was the Reformation sort of in the mid-16th century, sort of 1520 thereabouts, big moment um, in, uh, in, in Germany and all that happened. And then about 30 years later, in, uh, 25, 30 years later over in England, all this stuff was happening and, and prayer books started to be produced by Thomas Cramner. And they moved back and forth, I think, what, 15... 
49, I guess, was the first one, and then it was revised as Edward came in. Uh, that, was, that was Edward's, and then when Edward died as a young king, and then Bloody Mary came to power in 1552. There wasn't a prayer book because we went back to Catholicism, and then Elizabeth came to power, and somebody help me here. Um, that was probably 1559, I think. Uh, and then we had a prayer book for a good while until 1662, and that's the one that, that primarily the American church uh, kept when we came over to America and started all that, except we took out the king and we didn't pray to the king and all that. We, we, we changed all that. So in 1789, a slight amendment, but for the most part, these services were there. And it's just interesting to note sort of what um, what's changed and how it's lost. Uh, uh, the, the services for baptism, for instance, in 19, 1662, there's not a lot of... Um, because I don't think the baptism service and the confirmation service, which are remarkably similar in form in our prayer book, uh, we've lost a little bit. um, No, I'd say a lot more than that. I think we've lost a biblical, a strong biblical theology for baptism. Baptism, it looks pretty, and I've talked about this before, about the whole idea of a christening and becoming little Christ and all that. That's not a biblical view of baptism. Um, We do keep it some in the 79 prayer book because baptism... If there's, a, uh, if there's a symbol that's brought there, it's that the baby is being drowned. That the baby, as harsh as that sound, is dying. That the baby, that's where the dunking does have a, a place to, uh, uh, to, to commend it, that as we are thrust beneath the waters of baptism, as it says, that's a violent image. Um, isn't it odd that we've taken the, uh, the, the wrath of God meted out upon mankind in the flood in Genesis 6? No, that's not right. Where is that? Genesis yeah, 6, 7, and 8. Um, and turned it into a, a children's story about a rainbow. But really, think about it. It's about God destroying that which he had made. And that image is still part of baptism. Um, the movement through the Red Sea is a strong image in baptism, where uh, the waters parted and, and God's chosen crossed across on dry land but when Pharaoh and his army came through, the waters collapsed and drowned all of, uh, uh, how does it say, all of, uh, all of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army as well as their livestock. You know, and everything just perished. And so waters are violent. And there's a certain amount of that which is retained in baptism. 1662, we, I don't think many of us need to be historians to appreciate, it was a different time. You know, death was much more near. Um, a lot more sort of near to the elements of earth, and it retains some of this. You can hear this, Almighty and everlasting God, who of that great mercy did save Noah and his family in the ark from perishing by water, and also did safely lead the children of Israel, thy people, through the Red Sea, figuring thereby thy holy baptism, and by the baptism of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in the river Jordan, did sanctify, set apart, make holy, uh, water to the mystical washing away of sin, we beseech thee for thine infinite mercies that thou wilt mercifully look upon this child, wash him and sanctify him with the Holy Ghost, that he, being delivered from thy wrath, remember the wrath of God is real, and it needs to be dealt with. And that's a strong and robust uh, theology of, of God, of man, and of what God has done, taking seriously um, an account for sin and its, sinful, and its, uh, and its effects in this world, that this child, being delivered from thy wrath, may be received into the ark of Christ's church. That's where we get in the church symbolism. It's often we can call it the nave. That's what we usually call it. Same root as the word navel, obviously, not our belly button, but say our navy, um, where the the church, in some ways, uh, long symbolized by the ark um, that Noah had, where the church 
being saved from God's wrath above the waters of destruction beneath. And so we, we bring that into our, um, into our architecture as our churches mean something. They always symbolize. And we get the word nave. It looks like a boat turned upside down. And so we look up as if we're in the ark. And that's where we get the word nave. That's why we call it a nave. That this child being received into the ark of Christ's church and being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope, and rooted in charity may so pass the waves of this troublesome world that he may finally come to the land of everlasting life, there to reign with thee, world without end, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, strong, symbolic, robust, um, beautiful language, which which uh, is certainly conveying a lot of um, an idea, a theology, an understanding of who God is, of who we are, uh, the collision between the two and what really needs to happen. And then thanks be to God, a recounting of what did happen once finally and fully in God through Christ on his cross. And all that sort of gathered up here. And that's that's good. We'll look at it a little bit. Um, it's not completely lost in, in what we do now uh, and for our children, but um, uh, it doesn't try to shy away from it at all. There's no... What's, what's lacking? There's not the horizontal. We're not sort of praying for, uh, uh, for well, anyway, I'll just stop. Any comments on just this or what this is beginning to, uh, is it peaking any, um, any ideas? You can see I highlighted some parts. This is also in the 1662 baptism service. Um, the, the prayers that we're praying for the small child, because uh, these are all for children, because there's another uh, service for those who are of age. To uh, uh, like 12-year-olds, if you want to baptize a, a child, uh, a grown child, they answer for themselves. Here, um, O merciful God, the old Adam and the child may be so buried that the new man be raised up in him. That's a Pauline, um, in other words, from Paul's theology of baptism, particularly at Romans 6, that those who die with Christ so also shall be raised with him. Um, grant that the carnal affections may die in him. Um, grant that they may have power and strength to have victory and triumph against the devil, the world, and the flesh. Um, the, the Almighty God did shed out His most precious side, both water and blood. So there's there's a earthy, hard, almost violent language, a language of death and life, and they were um, very comfortable with that. Um, and I think it's needed. Um, I think it's something that's been lost largely in our culture today, and what's needed. There. Paula, you have a comment? Is this the King James Version? This would have been around at the same time that the King James Version was being written. So the prayer book and the King James Version, 1662, and the, and the King James was roughly analogous. Uh, Somebody know when the translation happened? We just had the 400th. Okay, now, the, the no, the 500th. Then we come a little bit afterwards then. so Yeah. That'd be right. So before that, they'd have been using the 1559 prayer book. Yep. Right there.
Sure, sure. Could be. At 1662, you know, that may be more apt. But this prayer book carried forth, you know, in just, say, 70 years hence to the great, um, the great Awakening, as it was called, speaking only of the Church of England, not to say anything else. And that's where the Church of England, colonial England, really went out. And this was the, this was the missionary book that they took, you know, to all the reaches of the world. Um, would have been this prayer book, the 1662, to uh, to colonize and evangelize Africa and, and uh, um, parts of, of South America and Central America. You know, historically, lots of comments on, you know, was that helpful or not, whatever. But uh, had the missionary zeal for the poor as well as it wasn't just for the elite. Um, with the printing press, obviously this was years before and part of the, the timing of the Reformation where uh, the, the Bible was given into the hands of the people. Um, the prayer books were also then printed and given to the hands of the people. It wasn't long, no longer in Latin, but in the common language, etc. and so forth. And so there was, um, there was a, a, a release to, to uh, I'd want to say to everybody, but I mean, your point is made. Not everybody could read. Um, you grew up on a farm. You just, or just you didn't grow up on a farm. The culture was was agrarian until the industrial revolution took place. But I don't think you could say that this was this isn't confined to classism. I would I'd want to develop something different to say that no, it's it's more than that. Um, does that kind of approach your question? Yeah, I don't know that either. So. I have my world history ignorance, but I have to sort of. True. Yeah, in England, speaking only of England, you know, church is pretty lively. Uh, lively, I mean, in the sense that it was broken up into parishes. Everybody just kind of, uh, you know, few block radiuses, in other words. And everybody kind of had their church. And that's where you did these things. Everybody um, was, was on the parish roster. Uh, and when something happened, you know, that's where you went. You know, there's good there's strengths and weaknesses with that. But Lori? Am I making this up or was there not a place for a church? Is that why I think in some parts, speaking again only in England, uh, some of the churches would have full time churches. A lot of them most probably did not, and so uh, clerics would do what they call riders, um, and so they would uh, uh, they might have six or seven services on a Sunday and go to different churches and go go around and some fantastic stories of people who would travel by horseback, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of miles uh, overseeing the care of the churches that they were given. So um, that's part of the reason they only had communion once a Sunday, um, but but not only. So another comment, question? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Good question. Um, the uh, pausing. I don't think that's a biblical phrase. It's the first place I go to try to think of where it's a biblical idea. I don't know if it's a biblical phrase with the idea of um, uh, of the redemption of the world through. Um, the fullness of time being called, strong sort of eschatology here, end of time um, understanding that when God says stop, as, as C.S. Lewis would describe it, when the playwright comes out and says to the play, okay, the play is over, and I'm the author of the play, 
and here's how here's how we go forward from here. Uh, the the play really is over, and 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 the playwright remains authorship and therefore authority. You could say the same thing about God. That right now in the chronos of time, tick 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 tick, we're sort of locked into that, and the world has its end point as it as it's locked into time. But God most surely, and this is the biblical idea of of, of the eschaton, uh, will step out onto the stage one day and say time, and so, meaning time is up. Time stops, Chronos stops, and Kairos, same name that Frank mentioned, by the way, for the, uh, the prison ministry, that just, that's, that's eternal time, the eternal now, as it were, where time is no longer there, where, where the world no longer has an end, but now it's the new beginning, the new Jerusalem, the time uh, at which every name on earth and under the earth will recognize as Jesus Christ as Lord and bow a knee, um, and then going forward from there... Well, going forward from there, God. You know, it really is just that. Um, the world no longer has an end. What's, what's on the other side at the place where the world no longer has an end? No more tears, no more sighing, no more groans. This is the burial service that we'll see in a minute. No more pain, no more death, um, no, more, uh, no more need, no more, as Joe Gibbs' sermon would say, no more... Um, no more desires that go unsatisfied, that every desire will immediately have its satisfaction. Um, and it's, a, it's all wrapped up into an eternal now. So it's a strong, what does it mean? It, uh, it refers to the, uh, the time when there is no time, when the world comes to an end as we know it, but the world as God knows it now comes into full fruition on earth as it is in heaven. It's sort of the, the Lord's Prayer idea. Does that help? I know it's not a full answer, but trying to make it short. It's when it's when the end of the world stops, when the world stops and the new Jerusalem starts. Um, well, yeah. Good question. Good question. So one more and then we'll move forward. Paul, do you have something else to ask? In England, yeah, yeah, England, yeah. Speaking only in England, I mean that was the uh, the state religion. Um, so yeah, it had all that. So. I think that's true, but like Scott, that's. That's from eighth grade world history, really, more for me. I would defer to my good friend Matt Stokes for a, uh, a class on that um, maybe in January when I'll ask him to do that. So um, uh, Let me move just for the sake of some movement here. Um, marriage, I don't want to do this, except there's this one great phrase in here. Uh, Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God in the face of this. You know, we, we keep that. Um, 
and it comes down right in here, and therefore it is not by any enterprise nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lust and appetites like brute beats that have no understanding. I just wanted to say that because I think it's a great phrase, and I wish we would have had that at our way. That was just some, so absolutely. So, um, so. No, they did it. There's not much romance in marriage in 16th or in 1928, and that's not all bad. I mean, it called a spade a spade, and it said, you know, okay, outside, and we could do this today. We really could. When you go back and do the reception, that's a great time. When you beforehand, that's a great time for all your parties and all that. But this is a word event where God is going to do something. You know, it's your turn to speak. I'll say this about burial, too. Maybe I'll say this now. You know, after somebody dies... Um, in the immediate aftermath, tell all the stories you want. It's important that we do that. Um, at the, you know, after the service and the reception, or you go back to somebody's home, or the weeks following, tell it. But you know, and so it's our turn to speak then in the service, in, in the marriage service, in burial. Look, it's God's turn to speak, as it were. Let Him speak. That's the idea. That's why we marry and bury well in the Episcopal Church. Is it leaves room for God to speak. And that's really important. I mean, I can, I can get like, emotionally charged with this, and especially when we go there. And that's some of what this is, um, where it's coming in. We, we could, uh, it, it lays out, you know, very dogmatically, you know, three orders for the purposes of marriage, for the procreation of children. It's a remedy against sin. It's Paul's answer. If you, if you, uh, if you can't stay unmarried like me, which is better, go ahead and get married, because it's better to be married than to, to, to burn with desire. Lust, sexual lust is what he's talking about. And then it's ordained also for the mutual society, help, and comfort, um, which we ought to have for one another. And just an idea, theology of marriage. Actually, there's more to marriage. Um, it's not perfect. I think there's the, the, the redemptive purpose of marriage, but I'm not going to go there. Um, let's move forward, shall we? Um, let's just look at the burial rites and, uh, and, and move um, for the sake of... Movement. I do want to say one thing. Scott had some great. Scott, um, we swapped some emails this week, uh, as I did with a few people. Uh, as I've been talking a lot about the revision in 1979 from 1928, point to to be made. Some of this group has been here for three weeks. We Episcopalians didn't do this in a vacuum. A massive change was going on in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In the mid 60s, the Roman Catholic Church had their biggest change since since the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation, what was called Vatican II. Um, they had huge changes to their liturgy. We were just we were 15 years behind Vatican II. Um, the Presbyterians split at this time. They had a lot of, of, uh, of change. The Luther, All the main lines had, had a lot of change. The Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, um, uh, the, and then the Roman Catholic Church, the one that didn't change because it's their definition is the, the Orthodox Church. They have been the same since the beginning, and that's, 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 their, that's their card. We're the Orthodox Church. We don't change. If, if you like that, come see us. Um, there's a lot to be commended to that. Um, uh, so just to say that, we didn't do this in a vacuum. It's not like some Episcopalians are over here and everybody else has got it right. I mean, that's, that's not the picture I wanted to put. So the burial liturgy. Um, let me uh, look at some notes here and get reset. Um, I want to be really sensitive because there, and I can get emotionally charged. I think we all can get emotionally charged because this room, we're all old enough in this room. We've we've lost people that have really meant something to us, and and that's why when they did revise the pastoral offices, they kept the allowment of burial one and burial two because in their wisdom they knew that look, we can't monkey with with the the 
the service, the funeral service, and 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 get away with it. We've got to give we've got to give them some options. People that were really wed to the language, for instance, to the rhythm of the 1928 book, and so they did with burial with rite one over here within the burial service, rite two, which kept most of it as well. As I said, this is the one I could probably live with the best. Um, but I do want to say a little bit, just kind of, and I, I toyed with this idea, and I thought, well, you know, it's a Sunday school class. Where else are you going to sort of talk about this? Um, uh, one way to think of church, it's, it's pre-death counseling. Um, you know, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and that's good. Uh, we're all going to die. Um, people that we love are going to die. Um, some of us in this room probably had that happen very recently or about to have it happen. I mean, it could be any one of us this week. Um, it's good to think of death. There's actually something very Christian in thinking about death and having that there. And we're seeing some significant cultural shifts as I was perusing this week, getting ready for this. I didn't realize, you know, a lot of us have uh, probably joked about, oh, he'd really enjoy being at his own funeral if he could. And there was that Robert De, um, Duvall movie recently, Get Low, where he did that. Well, that's becoming actually a, a, a real option. People with terminal illnesses, you can now plan your living funeral, where you not only plan your own funeral, you attend. And I, I, if I have any predictive play, that's gonna, we're only going to see that grow. In Alabama, not as much as in Portland, but, but it's going to happen. It's really going to happen. We're going to see it. Green funerals are big. That is happening in Alabama where um, people are saying, you know, don't be cremated, not for any theological reasons, but for a carbon footprint. And they're really saying that. It just takes a lot of... Uh, of, of combustible, you know, fossil fuels to, to, to reduce a body to ashes, and so don't don't do it, um, or don't use as many embalming fluids because it you know it stays and it poisons us. So culturally, we're we're thinking a lot about death. Um, there's many municipalities that actually have ordinances that prevent uh, cemeteries from being in their city limits because we want to sanitize death. We want to get them out. Um, didn't think about this until I was thinking about this class. Uh, and walking into church today, um, somebody asked me, we have a columbarium, which is just the word for um, a, uh, a, a place to place uh, as a part of the church ashes, um, the cremains from parishioners. Uh, we had that, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago, something like that. Um, there's something really good about that. Technically speaking, a graveyard is different from a cemetery. You might know how. You can impress your friends with this. A graveyard is attached to a church. And a cemetery is not attached to a church. Think about it. There aren't many graveyards anymore, and that matters. You know, I'm gonna. This is a horse. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna die on this. This isn't something I'm going to the guillotine over. But uh, we've lost something by not having graveyards anymore. And there's all sorts of practical reasons for it. I know. But walking into a church through a graveyard, you know, there's a certain there's a certain sobriety that's there, isn't there? Um, you walk in and, and, you know, there's people that maybe you knew or maybe they've been dead for hundreds of years, but it's pre-death counseling. I mean, it's pre-death preparation as we're going into the church saying, you know, something that matters here. Um, what's the movement against this? Um, and this is where I'm going to step on some toes. And, and forgive me, so I'm saying that on the front end. But, but you know, there's a lot of celebrations of life have been, and that's what they're even called now. They're not called funerals anymore. Uh, and that's theologically, it bears thinking this through. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. This is where I was like, should I go here? And it's like, well, if you're not going to go here now, 
when are you going to go here? Any one of us, um, in a, but in a Sunday school class. To think through what it means when you say a celebration of life. And the idea there, of course, it's a half-truth. Um, but when you take it out to its end, at least in its, 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 its modern-day incarnation, you know what I'm talking about, a celebration of life as opposed to a funeral. You don't want the funeral because it's so such a downer. It's such a There's usually a body there or a casket. Um, uh, people are sad. Um, it's a lot of language that seems removed, and it's just not, it's not fun. But a celebration of life, let's just, you know, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me if I'm offending. Um, celebration of life is let's, let's think happy thoughts. Let's celebrate not what we've lost, but let's celebrate what we had and who he is and, and who he was and, and remember some memories and we, we'll talk about it and we'll laugh and it'll be, it'll be much better and we'll walk away and we'll, we'll, we'll feel better remembering who it was. Now, it's a half-truth because that's important. But as I said before, this is, this, is, this is an opinion. It is an opinion, but I hope it's an informed opinion. Um, there's a time, there's a time to tell those stories. It's needed. It's necessary. I'm a counselor for crying out loud. It's what you need to do in the grief process. It's what, we, it's what we do. But in the service, the funeral, it's a time for God to speak. Um, uh, it's a time for God to speak. Um, little pieces, because I've, I've, I've took a lot of notes on this as I kind of went off on my own. Um, here's one way I put this. Um, death is no friend of God. It's been identified from the get-go as one of the great enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil, all sin and death. The, um, death was not part of his plan. Um, his plan was life, world without end. Um, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 bear witness to that. Revelation 20, 21 and 22 bear witness to that. The rest of the Bible, in some ways, is God's is the story, is the narrative of how God is reversing the mechanism of death to the place where death will be no more, neither crying nor pain nor suffering, um, but, uh, uh, but, 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 but his life everlasting. Um, and so to celebrate a life without really speaking, proclaiming God's judgment and remedy, more than remedy, his... Uh, uh, his satisfaction of death, so that 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 eternal life can actually be apprehended, we've lost something. Because when we celebrate a life, what are we celebrating? We're not celebrating how great a guy he was. Because truth be told, and we've all been to these things. I mean, one out of ten of those things I go to, it, it's really appropriate because that guy was really he really did he was a good guy. But a lot of times, truth be told, it's your uncle, and you knew that he really wasn't. You know, uh, and you're like, there wasn't a whole lot to celebrate in him, you know. And you're like, you, you know where I'm going. Let me just put it this way. A celebration of life, it doesn't bode well for sinners. It doesn't bode well for somebody who says week in and week out, you know, there is no health in me, um, in my manifold sins and wickednesses, uh, which I from time to time most grievously have committed in thought, word, and deed. There's not a whole lot to celebrate about that. Why is it a half-truth? And then we'll look at this. Because it is a time to celebrate the life which that person has because of, uh, of what God has done in Christ for each one of us. And that's the time. That, that's what a funeral is. That's what it should be. So I guess um, this week I sort of jumped into a hoop and said, I want to 
I want to fight for funerals again um, and get back in that. So um, anyway, I'll get off my box. Any comments there? Any thoughts, Kevin? There. Absolutely. The life to come. Yeah. Well, I'll read this one thing. Craig Parton, who's become a friend of the Advent, he was here at Lent. Um, uh, he wrote a, an article. Happy to email it to somebody if you want, but, but somebody. He started thinking about this very closely when his mother died, um, and he wrote this article two years ago in 2010. And he wrote this about uh, a friend of his named Bob, uh, who who died, and he was buried at sort of just a sort of a, a large, probably a mega church or something like that. And he had called a funeral a funeral. You know, he was trying to play it out that you know, trying to, in the celebration of life. And he says testimonials at Bob's funeral reminded me of the toast I recently endured at another quote-unquote school celebration for someone I will simply call Ed. Ed tragically took his own life, committed suicide in his garage, and was found by his son. Yet not one of the toasters at Ed's funeral, and he's doing that as a, obviously a play on words. It does feel like we're toasting at a, at a wedding sometimes. Now, now one of the toasters at Ed's funeral mentioned the sin of suicide at the celebration of the life of Ed. That would have been the true bummer to the party atmosphere. What we got treated to was he was a great, 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 funny, great, cool, great guy. I wondered what his son thought, who had found Ed, this is heavy, who found Ed hanging from the rafters in his garage. The boy deserved hearing it straight from the master of ceremonies of the celebration, I mean the pastor, that his dad sadly had fallen into the grievous sin of despair and that Christ in his mercy can cover all sins, including that one. The death of Jesus reaches even to that level of despair as we remain simul justus et peccator, at once justified and sinner, till death kills one half of that equation. I mean, that's when fight, a fight for a funeral is worth it, because as a pastor, as a counselor, people need that word. That's a heavy word, um, but it's needed. It's really needed. So, Charles? Sure. Appreciate that, Gerald. Hasten to jump in. It, it is. That's why I say it's not necessarily evangelism, not necessarily pastoral care, not necessarily teaching. And, and then I'll end with this. But the funeral service, God's finest hour, um, it becomes all those. But it becomes all those when that's not our intent. It becomes all those when we're here. 
And then all these things are added. Um, I've been, you've been to funerals where the pastor intended for it primarily to be an evangelistic service. And it's wrong because it cheapens, um, take this, two cents, it's all it is. It cheapens the experience of, 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 of God. It cheapens uh, the experience of those who knew him who were really suffering. Um, and it uses it, it objectifies it to try to make it to a convenient way of, of, uh, of pulling other people into the church. There's a whole theology behind that, which I do understand, that evangelism, give people a chance to hear. I mean, so, and that's, that, that's what I've heard at many, many funerals. Um, and so when it's aimed here as a proper place of worth and we let God speak, well, of course, what happens? <laughs> Evangelism. Um, hearts are strangely moved. Um, you're drawn to a sermon which, which really seems to get it and calls a spade a spade and says, you know, I never thought of it that way. I never felt that before. I never experienced that before. There was a nearness to the truth that I think I hadn't known before. Um, and it's that. Let me wrap up um, wrap up the series. Uh, one thing I was aware of as I was thinking of this this week is that that I think the only way to go is prayer book, write one stuff. That's not true. Um, if you know me, uh, I rarely use prayer book. Um, uh, I pray extemporaneously when it's time to pray, before a class, after a class. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not wed to the prayer book at all. I just wanted to offer some a chance for us to think about it when we do convene together for the purpose of worship, um, that it's a structure that uh, has stood the test of time. Um, what, that's the value of scripture, reason, and tradition. The tradition, those who have, have come before us, uh, the saints of God who have been apart for, for, for millennia past, have, have, have prayed this stuff. And it's been tested and tempered through time through all sorts of cultural and sociological and historical uh, changes, and it's and it's been uh, it's been proven to be helpful through all those times. It's been purified, as it were. I want to get I don't want to push that word too far. Um, so it's just a way to help. Um, is all right to? No, it's not all bad. N- none of that. Um, I don't walk out when all this happens. But it, it's just it's good to think about. And that's what I wanted to offer us was a chance to to think these things think to think these things through, so that when we pray um, when we're in a right to service here because it's really the right to version of the Apostles' Creed that we'll hear when we do baptism or confirmation. You can say, you know, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. It's just not quite the punch that has always been there to say that he was, uh, um, uh, what's the phrase? Now I've lost it. Um, uh, not conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, but was um, conceived by the Holy Ghost. Um, things like that matter. That's, that's all I wanted to say. Let me pray. Father, for um, this day and for, uh, for the last three weeks, I give you thanks as ever, Lord. Uh, uh, Take feeble words offered uh, and transform them by your grace. Um, where I was wrong, Lord, as I surely, most surely was, please accept my, um, uh, my, my, my repentance. Correct me where I'm wrong, uh, but mostly for the sake of your Son and all here uh, where I was wrong. Uh, do not bring that back to mind. But, Lord, where your word is, uh, is right, as it will not return to you void, multiply that word um, for, uh, for the purposes of your kingdom in a way that's really helpful to us here. Uh, uh, 
multiply it 30, 60, or 100 fold so it becomes a living word in each one of us, drawing us um, nearer to you in a right relationship during our worship. Um, I ask, uh, I beg all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.